The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Our scripture this morning is John 12, verses 23 through 33. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and it will, I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Thank you, Danny. You guys can have a seat. <clears throat> I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John. That's where we're going to be this morning. We are at the end of Jesus' public ministry. In fact, the, the, the rest of John chapter 12 is Jesus' last statement, his last public statements. And it's going to take us actually a couple of weeks to get through it. We're actually not going to get all the way through even what Danny just read there today because as I started looking at it, I, I, took a, I uh, assumed I could take a little bit bigger chunk of the passage than what we actually can handle this morning. But as we get going, I want you to think of something. I want you to think of a time when you had to explain Christianity to somebody. And maybe even have to explain Christianity to somebody who's never heard of Christianity. You had to start at the very beginning. They'd never heard of Jesus. They'd never heard of the Bible. Maybe they've never interacted with any Christians. Now, I know that that's kind of a hard thing to even ask you to think about because we live in the Bible belt and Christianity is assumed around here. There's uh, more churches than gas stations. Uh, I still believe that's a true fact. But where does it start? That's difficult, right? That's a difficult thing to consider. Where do we start when we try to explain Christianity? Well, we could start by explaining maybe the spiritual disciplines that we perform, maybe go to the more practical side of the Christian life. We do this, we don't do that. We follow the, follow the Ten Commandments, we read our Bibles and we pray, we do the spiritual disciplines and, it, and kind of explain uh, what we do. We could also go to the routines that we have. We go to church, we go to Bible studies, we have fellowship groups, we have care groups, we go bowling together, all of that stuff, which by the way, the bowling night was fantastic last night. We could start by looking at the Bible that we hold so dear. Somebody goes, tell me about Christianity, and we open up Scripture and go, well, there's 66 books, and there's Genesis through Revelation, and we, maybe we could talk about our personal history and our testimonies. Well, those are all possibilities. But I think that we would all say that we would start at the most important part, the most important subject, the most important person, Christ. We'd start with him. And we'd start with him because Jesus and his earthly, and his earthly ministry is the epitome of all that we believe. 
His life, his qualities, his characteristics, his attributes, his actions are all what we are called to follow. But here's the thing. When we start explaining Jesus to people, he makes no earthly sense. It's crazy. What he does does not make sense to people. To the ears of a person who's been blinded by sin in this world, Jesus in the gospel looks and sounds crazy. We've been dealing with it all throughout the gospel. We keep seeing people as they're coming to Jesus and he seems like a contradiction in terms. He seems absurd and a downright, downright silly declaration. He seems like a paradox. Our paradox, we're gonna use that word quite a bit today, so I wanna just define it for us all, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. A paradox is something that on, a, on kind of the face of things looks absolutely wrong, backwards, and silly, but when you get down to it, it's actually true. Paul described this paradox that we all live in Jesus himself in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, for the word of the cross is folly, foolish, silly, absurd to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus looks and sounds like a walking and talking paradox. One commentator described him as a riddle to many. A riddle that the, only, that the answer is only found through supernatural revelation. I just want to highlight this for us today, even before we jump into John. I want to go to another text where Jesus is described. This is Matthew 5. I mean, in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're about to read a part of, we hear the most strange-sounding, earth-shattering, backwards-thinking declarations come directly from Jesus. He opens up, this is a very early-on sermon in his ministry. People are still trying to figure out, what are you about? What is your message? What are you bringing to us? What, what, what are we supposed to follow? And Jesus has a Sermon on the Mount, and it begins by flipping their world on its head. I just want to read the, the Beatitudes for us. It says this in 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5 and the declaration that Jesus just gave goes against all of kind of the assumed natural order of things. What Matthew 5 just declared was that the strong will fail and yet the weak are victorious. That the mournful will rejoice and yet the glad-hearted ones will fade. That the humble will succeed and yet the proud will fall. I mean, I think of just another text in Matthew, a couple of chapters later. Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus came on the scene and he brought this message to the earth. And 
we had no category for understanding it. It seemed, again, like a paradox. It goes against all of our black and white, either or, us and them mentality that we are so naturally inclined to follow. Just, again, as you're thinking about that question of describing Christianity to somebody, allow me to illustrate this in kind of real time. Think about how you would talk about the depravity of man with somebody who knew nothing about Christianity. Like at some point in in our evangelism, we've got to get down to that part. We've got to have that discussion about the nature of humanity. And when we get down to the nature of humanity, it's a paradox even of itself. Because when we talk about the depravity of man, at 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 the one hand, human depravity is such terribly bad news. It is a devastating indictment. How does Paul talk about us? Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. The Christian message at the very beginning is, seems to be offering us this hopeless message. What, what human depravity seems to be talking to us is we can't do anything. All is lost. Just give up. But then on the other hand, to acknowledge ourselves as, as a sinner is a terrific relief. It allows ourselves to have the freedom to say, I can't do it. I need something completely outside of myself. I'm completely ruined. I need help. So in one side, it's this terrible indictment. And on the other side, it's this terrific relief. And what is that? That's the paradox of the gospel. As one author says, one paradox of the gospel is this. The bad news is God's very good news. Jesus has always flipped things on a head. Jesus has taken what seems to be something going one direction and turns it and goes another. Here's how one author describes these paradoxes that, that Jesus uses and God has always been using. It says this, It would seem to me at least that God has a kind of preference for paradox. Given the choice between either or, yes, given the choice between either and or, God would often choose and. Paradox, of course, is the way that we can rightly reckon not just with our nature, but God's. That he is imminent and transcendent. That he is merciful and just. That he is mysterious and knowable. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the great I am became the great and neither moderating as Godhead nor his humanity, but clothed himself in what seems to be a contradiction. Truly God and truly man. Just to wrap up this point, G.K. Chesterton goes so far to say that paradox is the beating heart of the gospel. And why do I start there this morning? As Jesus' public ministry comes to a close, we see the paradoxical nature of his public message come to a resounding crescendo. John 12 is the climax of his public ministry. What started in a private wedding ceremony by turning water into wine and what was detailed in the private conversation between Nicodemus has grown into a message that has taken the world by storm. And how does Jesus end his public ministry? By using a paradox. Just read again what Danny read in John 12. It says this in verse 20. 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, some were Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I love the imagery where John takes us in this passage as he sets up again this last public statement and address that Jesus will have. If you can think back to last week, what was the very last verse that we looked at? It's one other verse back. So it's verse 19. It said, so the Pharisees said to one another after the triumphal entry, after looking at people appropriately proclaiming Christ as Savior, it, the Pharisees in their angst and in their frustration said, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And I love that the very next verse doesn't highlight the Jews that are at the Passover. It highlights these Greeks. Now, who are these Greeks? These Greeks are Gentiles or non-Jews, uh, you know, probably a God-fearing proselyte Jew uh, that is, is coming in that has adopted the Jewish order of things, understands that Yahweh, in fact, is God. But think for a moment about the shame that the Pharisees are sitting in. The Pharisees were the gatekeepers to God. That's how they saw themselves being. That's why Jesus was so angry at the very beginning of this book when he was cleansing the temple because the Pharisees had barred the Gentiles from being able to come to God. That's why they set up their marketplace in the Jewish uh, or in the Gentile court. So literally what they were saying is we have no place for you. We're going to use this as our marketplace. They were the, the they, they controlled access to God. They were the gatekeepers the gatekeepers to God, and yet they've allowed certain people in. They've allowed certain people in. That's how they thought about it. We've allowed certain Greeks to come to our feasts to worship God and hear these friends of theirs. These people that they've allowed in are now wanting to see Jesus. They're thumbing their nose at the religious leaders of the day where they've said, you should not trust Jesus. And these Greeks saying, no, you're wrong. He's right. These Greeks are asking to see Jesus. Now, before we kind of get to the paradoxical side of the statement, I, there's a couple of things I want to mention about verses 21 and 22, uh, because I think this is just a great time to highlight this. Why did these Greeks go to Philip? Like there's an extraordinary amount of detail here about how these Greeks got to see Jesus. Because in other places when people have asked to see Jesus, it'll say they walked up to the disciples and they asked to see Jesus. So why is it that in this section, John takes the time to say it was Philip first, he was from Bethsaida. That doesn't matter where Philip was from in one sense. And then, and then they go to Andrew and then they go to Jesus. Why is it that they show this trail of communication? Philip was a Greek name. Philip was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was within the primary proximity of the Greek region. When these Greeks were trying to find a, uh, a, a way in to have a conversation with Jesus, when they were trying to find access to him and they looked around at these disciples, you would think that they, they felt a connection with Philip. I'm sure they also felt a connection and a comfort. If Jesus accepted him 
Maybe Jesus will accept us. So these Greeks went to Philip, and, and you know, why they went to Philip? We can only imagine that's it. That's, that, that's what all the commentators say. I agree with that. They went to Philip because he had this Greek leaning. They would be most comfortable with him. There would be this um, affinity because they were like-minded individuals. Well, then Philip went to Andrew. Why did Philip go to Andrew? I don't know. Why, why did Philip not think he had access to Jesus himself? I don't know, but here's an interesting point. Every time we see Andrew the disciple listed in scripture, it's very rare. Every time he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Every time. This is, R.C. Sproul said this is why when they built his church down in Florida, it was St. Andrew's because Andrew's bringing people to Jesus. Here's just a little piece of application, and, and I don't want to make um, a mountain out of a molehill here, but I do feel the urge to make this application. Who are you bringing to Jesus? And are you living your life in such a way with the recognition that maybe the Lord is going to use you in your background, in your affinity with somebody else, as the means by which somebody's going to meet Jesus? These Greeks felt comfort going to Philip and then going to Andrew. Do you realize that the Lord still uses us in that same way? There's somebody in your life, a friend, a neighbor, somebody that, that when they look at you and go, well, if, if, if they can meet him, I can meet him. I don't think we live our lives this way. I don't think that we, we understand and walk around in, in, in such a way that we are ordinary pilgrims that get to be a part of the process of bringing people to God. What I love about this church as a whole, I mean, the, the history of, of, of being able to, I'm so blessed that I've been able to meet many of the founding members. There's Joe Howell, who is, is the last of them, and I hope that you have an opportunity to meet her. But what I love about all of the founding members is their heart was for this church, community Bible, was that this would be a place, a community place where people could find Jesus, where ordinary people like you and I that don't live extraordinary lives. You're just going about being normal pilgrims. Get to be a part of God's miraculous plan of bringing people to Jesus. I hope when you wake up in the morning and you go to work or school or friends or stay at home or whatever your life looks like, that as a believer, you have an eye for understanding that you get to be a part of bringing people to Jesus as these disciples did. Just allow that to hit your heart this morning. Okay, let's, let's move on as we look at this. So these Greeks were brought to Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, how do you think Jesus would respond? How do you think this conversation would go if somebody walks up and goes, I want to see Jesus? Be like, well, what questions do you have? What can we do for you? Jesus, the way that he responds here is like total head scratch. What just happened? Because these Greeks come up and we have no idea which question they had, whether they needed to be healed, what was said. Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's not how I would expect Jesus to respond. And we also have to compare that with many other people have been brought to Jesus. Why is it that he's responding to these Greeks and to his disciples in this way now and he didn't respond in that way at other times? There's a finality about his response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We're at this 
phase in the gospel, especially because this is the last public statement that Jesus is going to make, where we have to do a lot of looking backwards at what we have seen. We have to have a, a, a lot of moments when, when we can go, oh, that's what was being said there. One of them that we can look back to is the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Think about what was said there. I'm going to quote the most famous verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Since that declaration in John 3, we've seen so many people come to Jesus and ask for so many things. Some have, have come asking for seeking signs. We want to see what you can do. Others have come asking questions. Uh, there, here's this quandary that you can tell me what the answer to. Or others have just wanted to see if Jesus is real. But the faith that these Greeks had, I just want to see Jesus ushered in the final hour. Something about what these Greeks coming to Jesus did, Jesus said, it's time. It's done. And I really think it goes back to that John 3, 16. The world is coming to me now. Imagine if Jesus' ministry ended earlier and it was isolated to just a few Jews in Jerusalem. Maybe it was isolated to a few Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. Maybe it was just isolated to the followers of Jesus that were on the Sermon on the Mount. All of that's bypassed now. The world is coming to Jesus. The Greeks are coming to Jesus. The Greeks understand who they didn't have a, a history with Jesus from you know, the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But even they are saying, we need to see Jesus because he is the answer to our problem. So in, instead of describing what their conversation was like, John rather offers us a declaration and in this last public statement, he offers us this declaration that that's really has three significant claims. Where Jesus, in a moment of finality, goes, this is who I am. Here's what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. We're only going to look at the first one today. I know we're still in the introduction part of this sermon. But there's three significant claims that are listed here in John 12. The first is his glorification through the cross. The second is his mission. He doubles down. This is why I came. Which this was the purpose of me coming. And the third was his witness to the Father. But all of these focus towards building up our faith. The faith that John listed out, the faith that the true light, which gives light to everything, is coming into the world. When I was a kid, I'm about to date myself with this statement, but when I was a kid, the first Mission Impossible movie came out. Some of you are chuckling because you weren't kids when that came out. When I, and we sat down and we watched it as a family. Now, I, I hope, a spoiler alert, I hope that you've all seen the first Mission Impossible movie. It's a great family movie. Kids, you can watch it. And I watched it with my mom. Bless her heart. I kind of mean that in the Southern sense in this instance. She watched it three times and was like, what happened? Couldn't understand it. 
Because the way, the way the movie goes is it shows all of these actions and then all of a sudden there's a scene at the end of the movie where they've accomplished the mission that's impossible to accomplish and they're sitting in a, in a fire truck and then you start to see these flashbacks. And in the flashbacks you realize what you thought was happening during that first time you saw the scene was actually something different where uh, discs are being slipped in and out of certain pockets and you, you, what, what people you think were on your side actually aren't on your side. You can see this kind of movie in reverse going, oh, that's what was happening that led us here to the end. I'm kind of doing that with the Gospel of John already. I'm kind of looking back at these conversations, water into wine and Nicodemus and blind man and all these conversations and realizing I thought it was going one direction. But from the very beginning, from the prologue to Genesis 3 to Genesis 5, not Genesis, sorry, John 3 and John 5 and all of these times, what we get to see then is that God has always been doing what he's about to declare to us. And that is the paradox of his glorification. That's what we have in this first section, 23 to 26, the paradox of his glorification. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Think for a moment. How would you honor, exalt, or glorify somebody? Let's say somebody came over one day and he said, I have a question for you. I need to honor a friend of mine. What should I do? What would you say? I was thinking about it. We actually have a biblical story that highlights this. It's back in the book of Esther. Esther is a Jewish queen that is living in a foreign land. And the Jews, one, once again, because this is their story, were uh, on the verge of being destroyed. And Esther, Queen Esther, has a relative by the name of Mordecai. And Mordecai has gotten under the skin of the right-hand man of King Hajuerus. His name was Haman. Haman hates Mordecai. Like I said, he hates Mordecai so much, he not only wants to destroy Mordecai, he wants to destroy all of the Jews because Mordecai is a Jew. Well, there's a really ironic scene in the story of Esther. It takes place in chapter 6. It says this. And the king said, sorry, I should give some background because I'm not going to read that. The king couldn't sleep one night. And he picked up his history book of their nation. And he started reading through it. I wonder if he's reading through it of like, tell me all the good things I've done or just want to hear about what, what's happened in history. And one of the things that he came upon as he was reading it was that he was reminded that Mordecai saved the king and saved the nation. There was a, um, a conspiracy going on and Mordecai uh, gave light to that conspiracy and that the king didn't die for that. And the king realized he hadn't honored Mordecai for it. So here's what he says. So the king said, as he's sitting in his room reading, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, perfect, he's exactly the guy, right hand man. Have him come in, I got a question for him. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? 
Imagine that question being thrown at you as you walk in the room. And Haman said to himself, hmm, he must be talking about me. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, well, for the man whom the king delights to honor, what would I like to happen to me? Oh, first, let robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robe and the horse be handed to the one of the king's most noble officials. And let him dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let, him, and let him lead him on the course through the square of the city, proclaiming, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights and honors. That's a way to honor a man, right? And the king said to Haman, Hurry. I like that idea. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and let, let, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. That's how you honor a man. Give him a robe, give him a horse, give him a crown, give him somebody who is proclaiming through the streets, this is what this man has done. The, the irony of that story, I, just, I had to use that. That's how the son of man should be glorified. That's not how Christ says he's going to be glorified. Now, what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it shall bear much fruit. Christ says that his exaltation and glory comes through death. That makes no sense. Now, to the agrarian culture that was here, they understood that in order for the harvest to be completed, the seed had to go into the ground and die so that it could reproduce itself many times over. But it made no sense for God to say, now is my time to be glorified, so I must die. You see, this is the greatest paradox of them all. This is what Christ makes, this is what makes Christ seem absurd to the world. That the intended ending of his ministry has always been glorification, but glorification not through a crown, but through a cross. This is why his power is perceived as weakness. Again, as 1 Corinthians says. This is why it's so crazy that his glory comes from suffering, that life comes from death, but it's always been the reason why Christ came. I mean, think about Philippians 2. That declaration that we know so well. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he, was for, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what? Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hear the paradox in it all? Life, sorry, death equals life, submission equals glory, emptying yourself equals exaltation. That's why Christ came, to die, to show his power through death. 
This is why the world, when we start to describe Christ to them, has no way of computing this because it goes against everything that's in our nature. How in the world is death equal life? How in the world does weakness equal power? How in the world does emptying yourself, submitting yourself, giving up everything from yourself equal glory and exaltation? Because it's God. That's the answer. Because God operates in paradoxical ways. Because God is not an either or God, he's an and God. Because God can sit here and show his glory through these things that blow our mind. But look at how Christ continues. Because he's not just talking about his death. He's also talking about our death. Because our life in Christ is paradoxical as well. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, one of the hardest statements to grapple with as a parent is when Jesus says it's in Matthew, and forgive me, I'm, I believe it's in Matthew 10, when he says that unless you forsake father or mother and brother or sister, you can't come to me. What's so hard about that statement is, I mean, those are people I know. Those are people I love. I have to forsake them. But what he's saying is unless you give everything to Christ, you can't come to him. Unless you come to the end of yourself and realize all I have is Christ, you can't come to him. Unless you are willing to lose your life and hate your life, you cannot have eternal life. Those are some shocking words. Now, we can hear that and we, because we have Pharisees in our own hearts and we love to make laws out of it, can make this list of things, oh, therefore I have to do X, Y, and Z. But that's not what Christ is talking about here. What Christ and God is talking about here, unless you realize that the depravity of man is both a uh, terrific indictment and tragic indictment, but is also a terrific relief, you cannot come to Christ. Unless you realize that you have to forsake everything. I mean, think about just the, the, the level of personal achievement that this world throws at us to say, when you reach certain levels, then you'll be good to go. Imagine how this world throws at us this immediate gratification of once you start to feel this way, then you'll be good to go. Um, just, just think about the pleasures that we are like allured away from God with. And it's the simple thing, just like Eve. God didn't really say you'd die if you took a bite of the apple. And we run after those apples, all the fruit, not apple, whatever. Those fruits all, all, all throughout our life. You see, life that is focused on self, a life that is lived trying to satisfy in this world, a life that is lived trying to not die, is not a good life because we'll lose it because we can try as hard as we possibly can to be good enough 
and we'll never get there. But what's the paradox of the gospel? If you die to self, you'll live. If you look completely outside of yourselves and give up, you'll be victorious. Doesn't this just sound odd? Like I, I, even I want to footnote it. But that's literally what Christ is saying here is that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and that glorification does not come by tr doing more and trying harder, but comes through death. You see, the, the struggle of coming to Christ is that we have to give up everything that this world says is important. That's the real struggle. The list of things that the world says that are important, we have to give them up the power and the status and the personal achievement and the you know, trusting in our nation's power and, and um, policies and politics, all of that stuff, giving all of that up and saying, all I have is Christ. Let's go back to that question I started with. How would you describe Christianity to somebody that had never heard about God known scriptures, hadn't walked, stepped foot in a church. I think it's this. A man came 2,000 years ago to do what you and I can never do, live the perfect life. And that man did not deserve to die. That man was the only man who could have received the glory that was due his name because he lived the perfect life. But that man died and he didn't die just so that he would go away. No, he died so that he could reproduce himself in us. Just like that seed goes into the ground and dies. And from that seed comes a harvest. And I'm a part of that harvest because I realized that I had to die to myself and look to the seed that died first. In a couple of months, we're going to get to this analogy about the vine and the branches. This is when Jesus is having a, his last moments with his disciples. And the only way to be a part of the vine of Christ is not to try to will ourselves into it. It's not to try to work ourselves into it is not to try to be better. This is what's different about Christianity versus any other religion. Any other religion you start with, here are the things you have to do. Christianity starts with, stop all of that because you can't do it good enough and look to the one who's done it. Then you can be a part of the vine. Then you can be a branch. paradox of his glorification is that life comes through death that glory comes through suffering and that in hopeless situations like the cross it's the most glorious situation of them all as we turn our attention towards communion today I mean we're here at the paradox right we a bunch of dirty rotten sinners you're, you're pretty good I know but at our core Sinners are here rejoicing in our salvation, are here rejoicing in the hope, the eternal hope that we have in Christ because he was the one that we needed because he accomplished everything that is 
required by God. And we can sit here today never saying, look what I have done, because that is hopelessness and bondage. But saying, look what my Savior has accomplished for me. And the fact that he gave it to me by grace through faith is mind-blowing. So as we take this as believers, let's celebrate that. I do have a word to anyone who's here maybe joining us for the first time or, or, or maybe you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you still hear Christ as that paradox that he is to the world. Like that makes no sense. Life's not supposed to come from death. I'm supposed to try harder. What I would ask is that you let these elements pass you by. Ultimately, because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't even take communion to fill ourselves up in Christ. It's not this leveling up. It's not something we have to do, literally. We cannot do anything. All we have is Christ. And so we don't want even taking these elements to be that thing that you think to yourself, no, I'm saved because I take this, because I do that. What I would ask is you let the elements pass you by, but then you come find me afterwards. I would love to communicate and let you know about the glorious gospel of Christ that we can die to ourselves and live to tell about it. Let's pray and we can take communion together. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ and for this glorious message. Lord, use us. Use us for your glory and for your name. Lord, use us to be witnesses to be messengers to you like Philip and Andrew were. Lord, protect us from being blinded by this world that wants to lie to us and that does so every day. That says that we are only as good as, as the things that we accomplish. That we are only as safe as the actions that we have performed. That tells us to look back in the mirror and judge ourselves by what we see. Lord, protect us from that because it is bondage. Salvation never comes from that. People have been trying it for thousands of years and if they could accomplish it, you wouldn't have sent your son. Lord, protect us from our self-righteousness. And then, Lord, protect us from living a life that is directed towards self, that is still trying to achieve the status symbols of this world. Lord, use us to be testimonies of grace and testimonies of your glory. And as salt and light to this world, Lord, I pray now as we take your table, and we get to be reminded by this cracker and juice that the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection that we so desperately need comes from you. Let's be with us now in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.